our people are very involved in our business. You know, they, this is a really participative culture. It's a collaborative culture, and that really builds commitment uh, as opposed to compliance. Something I like to say often is that, you know, want to operate from a place of commitment, not compliance. And, and I think that's, you feel that difference when you're in our stores with our people and they're kind of meaning and purpose about their jobs. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. I'm really excited to share my conversation with my next guest with you. Bill Weimer is the president and CEO of Town and Country Markets, a 64-year-old family-owned chain of grocery stores here in Seattle. Bill is one of the most thoughtful and humble and down-to-earth leaders that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. We talked about a bunch of different things, what it was like to run a public-facing retail grocery business during this last year in the pandemic. We talked about how Bill and his leadership team practice a real deep form of leading with humility and listening, and the way that they think about their Uh, employees and their people, the way they invest in them, the way they take care of them, and the way that the business moves forward because those folks are able to um, not just do their best work, but contribute to a shared sense of purpose. Um, They're part of their communities. They know their customers, and and they're always... um, sort of fighting to stay relevant for those customers and and the needs of the customers. And they're running a, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, a year business at at the same time. So it's a really, really interesting and fascinating conversation. I'm really grateful that Bill took the time to share his perspective. But we also talked about the way that, like every part of our world, technology is becoming a huge part of the grocery business. And that was a really fascinating part of the conversation too. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, I, I certainly did. I uh, am really honored that that Bill was willing to take the time and, and connect with me and have this chat. So please enjoy. Yeah, so you said this has been the biggest personal growth, not talking about market growth or anything like that, although maybe maybe that's also part of it. But Maybe could you just start by just telling me a little bit about your your career path and and kind of what you do now and how you got here? Okay. Well, again, my name is Bill Weimer, and I am currently the president and CEO of Town and Country Markets. We are a family owned, sixty four year old independent grocery company operating uh, six stores in the greater Seattle area. And I've been involved in the food business most of my life. I started in high school working in a local supermarket, cleaning meat departments of all things, and and advanced from there. And and I've had the opportunity to work for family companies really my entire life. Worked up through the business, went to school uh, at Michigan State to get even a degree in in 
uh, food marketing, food retailing, and and then went on to work at both the wholesale and, and retail levels. Yeah, it's it's been at the wholesale level. I work for a cooperative wholesaler that supported independent grocers, so I had a chance to work with many family companies, and that gave me lots of context. And and then I got the itch to get out and do retail myself. And a gentleman by the name of Don Nakata, who was the president and CEO of Town and Country at the time, became a friend, and we decided to go into partnership on a store in Seattle which is now the Ballard Market. And uh, that's how, that was my first term with Town & Country. I spent six years with them and we bought several stores together and it was, it was great. And then I went off to work for an ESOP grocery company, which was quite interesting. Uh, I was then an ESOP employee stock owned uh, company. So all the employees ah, okay. owned stock and I worked with them for about six years. And and then I was bought and sold a couple of times by other equity companies and other independent grocers. And when I turned 50, I uh, started to um, be concerned about the direction the company that I was currently working for was going and decided to leave. And from the first time in my life, I worked outside of the grocery industry. And that was my first CEO job as a running a manufacturing company called Cascade Daffle. And I did that for six years. Fascinating experience, by the way, spending my life in the grocery industry and then working in manufacturing. And then I had remained friends with Larry and the town and country folks and ultimately was able to come back and join them in 2010 as their, as their CEO and have been there ever since. Yeah. So you're, you're 10, 11 years into this, into this yes. role. Yes, I am. Couldn't be in a better place. You know, I've, I've got 50 plus years of work in and, and be able to work at this stage of my career from a company uh, with this kind of culture, commitment to the employees and the communities we operate in. Uh, I couldn't ask for a, a better situation and I'm enjoying the ride. We've got a lot of great things going on and, and it's been quite a journey so far. You said culture. It's interesting that that's kind of one of the first things you you mentioned. Tell, can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, not just the culture, but also about how you work to create and maintain the culture that you have? Well, first off, understand uh, this is a 64-year-old company. So this culture started way before me. And uh, really, it, can go back, it goes back really to the founders. And there were three of them. And their not only passion for the business, but their care of employees and the communities they operated in. And those are really kind of, the, that's really the foundation of the culture. And, you know, Town & Country uh, is a rare company in the sense that independent grocers are not, there's not many of them left. And the fact that right. we are still viable and uh, succeeding in this very competitive industry is quite remarkable in itself. And it really stems from a family that, is committed to the business. Uh, you know, they put all the profits back into the business. And, and this is a very capital intensive business, by the way. And they're committed to the employees uh, and the communities we operate in. And, and, and also keeping our stores relevant, which I could spend a whole hour talking about uh, in this very competitive business. Because if you don't stay relevant, obviously you're not going to be around. We work very hard at that. Our people are very involved in our business. You know, they, this is a really participative culture. It's a collaborative culture. And that really builds commitment uh, as opposed to compliance. 
Um, something I like to right. say often is that, you know, we want to operate from a place of commitment, not compliance. And, and I think that's, you feel that difference when you're in our stores with our people and their kind of meaning and purpose about their jobs. We also, the company has invested a lot in our leaders, uh, leadership development work for years, started way beyond before me. And that makes a huge difference when you've got, you know, high level of commitment from your leaders. And, and you think about the individuals, six of them that run our stores. These are multi-million dollar businesses in themselves. I mean, some of our stores do 40, right. 50 million a year, have 200 employees, you know, so they're effectively the CEO of these, you know, regional businesses. And, and so they, they need to be uh, equipped for that. And the company has put a lot of work uh, and investment into leadership development as well. So all these things contribute to a culture. Now it's, it's not perfect. I mean, we're, we're it's in this last year, we were stressed a lot uh, because of the virus and how it impacted our business. But, but I will tell you, it's the reason we came through it uh, so well. And uh, I, it's, we could have done it without our people. So, so very people centered culture and it's um, just an incredibly rewarding place to work. And I, again, I've worked for multiple companies. I've seen a lot of different cultures top down and ESOP, you know, which is another really interesting concept when your employees own stock, they're very committed, right. but this culture is the best that I've ever experienced. And so I'm very grateful. And, and tell me, you know, you said the culture was an important part of what helped you guys not just get through, but can I use the word kind of thrive during the last year? Yeah, Even that I, I would say we thrived under the circumstances for sure. Thrived yeah, yeah. So can you give me kind of a tangible example? Like what's something that 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 you could do that you wouldn't have been able to do or you wouldn't have been confident that you could have done in a in a compliance culture? Well, I think that people took our people took personal responsibility uh, and it was a responsibility around safety, safety for each other as employees, safety for customers. You know, I, maybe I could give you a little context of how chaotic things were when it started. And, and that might uh, help give you a better understanding. Please. Oh, February 28th. I remember the date. Um, and we got word that there was a student at Jackson High School uh, near a Mule Creek store that um, tested positive for the virus. And the school district was going to close the school. And when I heard that, I requested that our store leadership and our office leadership get on a call so we can talk about this situation. I said, because it, it appeared ominous to me. I had no idea how ominous it was going to be until it eventually played out. And that was the first day of 60 days in a row of getting our people on a call, eventually Zoom, and talking about what are we doing. And it was an amazing process of dealing with a lot of chaos, a lot of fear, and creating protocols and action necessary to ensure that our people, first and foremost, were safe and our customers were safe. And, and literally every day, it was this collective intelligence. There would be 30 people on the call where we would talk about what are we doing? And, and 
to give you the magnitude of this, Town Country is fortunately very good locations and we do a lot of transactions. Uh, prior to COVID, we would do 120 to 130,000 transactions a week. Each transaction represents a customer walking into the store, grabbing a grocery cart, right. touching counters, going to the salad bar, whatever it may be. And every time that happens, uh, based on the information we had, there was a chance that the virus could be, could be spread. And, and so, you know, thinking about how do we sanitize every grocery cart? How do we sanitize every surface that a customer touches? How do we, how do we protect our people? from picking up, you know, the virus and, and everything from adding hours and hours of sanitation processes for every grocery cart was sanitized, every hand basket was sanitized, putting up plexiglass to protect, you know, people, all these things uh, were talked about every day. And, um, and, in, and the collective intelligence of this group was able to improve what we were doing. For the first couple of weeks, it was chaotic because we not only had this virus going on, Tremendous employee fear, by the way, Chris. That, that's something right. I've never experienced. I mean, to have people actually afraid to come to work. And and, and I actually, it's it's funny, I'm, I'm going to interrupt because I I just want to share, like, as you're talking about it, I feel it right now. Like, yeah. like and, you know, because there was so much we didn't know. There was so much that was unknown at that time. And, like, I, I would say... I go around the world now with like like very low level mild anxiety today, but like there was a lot of fear, and I'm like oh. refeeling that as you talk about this. So I can't imagine what it was like to be kind of managing the the people, the emotional, and the business side of that all at the same time. Yeah, like I say, it's not like nothing I've ever experienced in 50 years, and we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know how about the virus was spread, you know, we had employees, you know, who were working and committed to work and serve, but they had also to be concerned for themselves and their families, you know, I mean, people going home, yeah. not touching their kids until they got in yeah. the house, changed, uh, showered, changed their clothes, then they could hug their kids, you know, or, or if they had high risk parents at home, all this sort of thing. We, we had at one time, we had over 20% of our people opting out. And we liberalized our, our leave policies and sick leave and all that. So people could at least still ensure that they had income. And, and, and we told people, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't want to work, if you're afraid to work, you don't have to work. And it was amazing how many people did work, but it was, you know, it was that type of thing that was, was going on. And, and so for that first two weeks, we were just scrambling, what do we do? But this collective intelligence of, Come together. Okay, what about this? What about this? What about this? Starting these, these this protocol, improving it every day as we learn, sharing what we learned, and, and improving it. That went on for sixty days, and then on top of that, we had this supply chaos uh, because people started to panic, and we had some days where the stores did double what they normally do in sales. Wow! And you know, we've got an amazing food system in this country. Uh, really, but it's it's a just in time food system. So, right, you know, manufacturers producing product today that's going to be sold, you know, and consumed in the, within a week. So, you everybody experienced what that's like when you have run a run on product, and and so we were. And the interesting thing, Seattle was about two weeks ahead of the country because uh, you might recall that we were having we had that nursing home that was having some deaths and. And so we had kind of a heads up and we were 
working on this stuff. But in about two weeks, the rest of the country started to catch up. And so the demand for product just went exponential. And being a small operator, you know, the big guys come in and, and demand and take product. And so that aspect, and again, our, our product folks did an amazing job finding and sourcing supplies. Sometimes not ideally the things that we would normally want, but if it was right. if it was sellable, single roll toilet paper, you know, probably prior to COVID, we sell hardly any of that. Well, guess what? That's all we get. So we brought it in, and, you know, and, and we were selling it. It was just things like that that you know, yeah. were rising up and, and responding. And so after about two weeks, though, I will tell you that uh, despite the chaos, you could see a clarity coming with folks that it was, it was really about saving people's lives. And our people got so focused on that purpose that it really drove them to do the right things. And that purpose really served us through this time dramatically and significantly. And, uh, and, and it, it went through stages, you know, eventually we became the mask police and I can't tell you what that created around conflict. It, it was, you know, people having, are people having to be at the door uh, refusing folks that didn't want to wear a mask. They thought the virus was a hoax. Uh, right. One of our stores, we actually had protests because we took a, a no mask, no service uh, about in September. We firmed things up because there was a, an exception where you, if you had a medical condition, you could come in without a mask. The reality is you're coming in without a mask and you could potentially be spreading the virus. By that time, we had gotten our online service up. So we had an alternative for people. And we said, if you're not going to wear a mask, you can use our online service, but you can't come in the store. Confrontations got even more intense, and uh, yeah. we, we even had protesters, a group that came to our one of our locations three times to, to protest us taking that stand. So it, it's just a wide range of things that occurred, but we couldn't have done it with <laughs> well, you're people responding. Them. I mean, you were very much a a 100% public-facing business, you know? I yes. Mean, and so you've got all of the challenge like you inherit all of the challenges that come just from the fact that the public space is very challenged right now yeah the mask thing is interesting and um i don't even want to speak to the science of it or the policy of it but i always think it's interesting because people don't try to go into stores without pants and then <laughs> yeah. uh and then claim that they have a right to do that and i i just it's really interesting where we as humans kind of set our reference point i think that's a very um I think a uniquely human thing, what we, you know, it's the, like how far back we look for this stuff. Yeah. The humanness of this was quite profound uh, for sure. And yeah, it, you know, it, for us, it really was, um, you know, again, the priority of safety, but it was also this just basic respect and consideration for others. Right. And right. Uh, boy, we saw just the opposite of that during some of these uh, confrontations. So. Yeah. And so, gosh, there's so much here. The thing I am curious about, there's lots we could talk about, but the the one thing that's standing out to me is, you know, with these conversations with your leadership team, and as you said, this leadership team that, that you have invested a lot in, and this leadership team that has a lot of responsibility, you know, managing a $50 million store with 200 people in it, uh, 200 employees, I mean, that is a, that is a big deal. That is big, not- Really big deal. Um, 
It's a big responsibility. And then when you add fear and health and safety onto it, 10 times uh, more responsibility compared to, to the the pre-pandemic, you know, aspects of it. And so what I hear you talking about, and I'm curious if how this lands with you, I hear you talking about a leadership team that kind of was able to be, almost was able to be kind of like flexible and, and, and distributed in their experimentation, but centralized in their learning. So when somebody learned something, they would bring it back to the group and then everybody would benefit from that. It wasn't you and your corporate COO in a room, you know, well, obviously not in a room, on Zoom, you know, saying, all right, this is what we're going to do. It's like the solutions came from, from, from the people that were close to the problem. And then they also benefited the rest of the people that were close to the problem. Does that seem right? Yes, it does. You know, and, and we talked about this idea of commitment versus compliance. You know, we could have been they were sitting at the office saying, do this and do this, and they would have been complying. But instead, they were creating with us and uh, they were very committed. Um, and, you know, we made a lot of mistakes too, but we, we were able to change that quickly. And, you know, we're big believers of Kaizen in our company. Continuous yeah, development. cool. And, and so this was, this was Kaizen exponentially, uh, really. And, uh, but their participation really was, was huge. And we couldn't have done it. We would not have done it as well. Uh, giving them directive from the office, it just would not have happened. And, and, but it was that volatile of a situation too, where we, uh, it, it was so much going on that you, you needed many voices in that process. And, and um, but we knew that we had purpose around serving our communities, you know, being an essential business that needed to provide food. And we wanted to do it in a safe manner and protect people. You know, you just said something that that really struck me and you said it in such a casual, matter of fact way that that I wonder if you know, I, I wonder if it if it still seems profound to you. Um, you said almost in passing, you know, well, we made a lot of mistakes. And I, I wonder, do you know how unique it is for, or not unique, but do you know how, how rare it is for a CEO to be able to say, well, we made a lot of mistakes, but we learned from them? Well, gosh, I, you know, I, I don't have context around, you know, I, maybe I haven't taken the time to think about it, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, my life has been defined by a lot of mistakes and, and adjustments. You know, I, it, I mean, and, you know, this business is very unforgiving. So you don't, have a lot of room to feel sorry for yourself. You, you really need to take action and, and, and move on. And, you know, and I think that's foundational too to who we are as people, that we don't be victims. You know, it's easy right. to be in a victim world and create a lot of drama around that, or, you know, let's get on with things. We got things to do. And you know, maybe that's just the nature of our business because it is very, very demanding. But Certainly, it's part of our culture to people taking, again, personal responsibility for who, not only who they're, what they're doing, but also who they're being um, to lead and, and, and take the appropriate action, uh, but also take the time to listen, the power of listening. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, and this, and this goes back to what one of the things I'm thinking just a lot about today is how the modern, um, 
I don't know what the right way to say this is, you know, the modern craft of leadership or the modern um, imperative of, of leaders is not to come up with the right answer and push that out to people, but to be curious about the answers that other people have and to be curious about how the people that are closest to the problem see the problem and to, to realize that when they're resisting uh, something you've come up with, it's probably the case that there's something that you're not seeing that they don't like about it or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we, another word that we use in our company a lot, language, language creates your worlds is uh, enrollment. You know, and it may be that, you know, you've got to go from here to there uh, and you have an idea of how you're going to do it. Um, You present that and you go through this process of really enrolling people in the why, why are we doing foundational and, and, and what could we do better? They may see things and being open and listening to that to make adjustments. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's just so essential again for them to get commitment from people to, to do it that way. And, you know, again, I've learned at times where I've taken charge and said, we're going this way and it didn't turn out so good. And, and so I've, I've, I've paid my dues, uh, as a leader, but, but I do think that this is a such an important part of who we are as a company. And, and it really made the difference for us to get through this. You know, we, we got a lot of feedback from customers who were appreciative. They, they preferred going to our stores because they felt they were safer than going to our competition. And so that really was evidence that, you know, we, we ultimately were doing the right thing. And I think that's why we keep through this uh, so well. Yeah but not without a lot of stress though, right? Because it, it was an incredibly stressful period. Well, and, and how did you, I mean, you've already talked a little bit about this, you know, giving people the chance to, to not come to work if they didn't feel safe or they didn't feel like they could. But I'm curious, what, what are some of the other ways you supported your, you know, your, your leadership team and the, and, and the folks in the store? You know, I think one thing, for a little bit of context, one thing that I've observed is that a lot of people started the pandemic journey as kind of a sprint. And and that sort of describes, you know, 60 days straight worth of meetings is very much that. And, and I think the people who I've seen who have done, you know, well, figured out at some point that they needed to transition the they needed to build systems to transition their the pace of their operations so they didn't have to be at 110% all the time. Right. And so I'm curious about that, how you, how you, what, what you think about that. Well, I'll tell you one thing that, that was very obvious and it happened, you know, fairly early on was people were getting really tired. Uh, I mean, really tired. And some of them were working seven days a week. Uh, we were all working seven days a week. And, uh, and so taking the time to, you know, really encourage people to take care of themselves. It was hard at first because our volumes were higher than normal and we were, you know, we're understaffed and, you know, we started hiring temporary folks to kind of fill that in. So we, we, once we started to get control of it, we really became focused on people taking care of themselves and getting a day off. Um, now that wasn't perfect. And some of it is, you know, we've just got such devoted folks that they're going to die on the sword. But, but we did pay a lot of attention. And, and again, these calls 
which we now call community calls, and we're still doing them, by the way, three days a week, we would remind people to, to take, take some time off and take care of yourself. And so I think that was part of it. I think being present when we could, the protesting that took place, which was really quite ugly because they, they actually, the first time this group, I'm not going to give the name of the group to give them credit, but the first time they protested, we actually closed the store down for two hours. Busy store. Wow. Uh, but it wasn't safe. And we just, yeah. and, and, but I, you know, personally felt, and, and a lot of the key leaders in our company felt they needed to be on premise, be there with everybody to, to help and to support. And so people from all over the company came to help this particular location during this period of time. And I was there and, and a, a lot of our key leadership was there to, to really be in support and just to observe what was going on and to make decisions or help make decisions. Like closing a store for two hours on a Saturday. Jeez. Unbelievable, you know? Yeah. And i uh, never done that before. And so, but it, but it wasn't safe because they had penetrated into the store without masks. They were creating, you know, havoc in the stores. And so we said, no, we closed down. We got smarter because when they came back the next time, we had more security, we had different procedures in place. and. Um, and by the third time they showed up, we had actually gotten an injunction to get them off the property. So it took that long. Um, and this was dealing with local police who didn't want to do anything. Right. It was, it was, there was just a lot of variables. But I think being there to support them, that's always a challenge. Uh, I, I don't never feel I'm out in the stores enough. I, that's always something I, I want to do more of. Um, and so, so I think being present, uh, physically present was a, was a factor. So these, these all contributed to what was going on and, and people's commitment. But I, I think more than anything else, encouraging people to take care of themselves, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was, that was a big deal and, and needed to be done because people were burning themselves out. Well, it feels heavy again, you know, like I just, I don't know if that, if that for me, just imagining that, you know, just evokes what that time was like. And it was, yeah it was challenging and my business takes place in, in this little room. And I'm, you know, I, I already talked to people through screens and, but you know, the, the big shock early on, and I'm sure this affected lots of people in your stores was there was no childcare all of a sudden, you know, and that was just an incredible, you know, to have that switch overnight was just talk about letting go of control. Just like, wow, like, I guess we're, guess we're going to have to do this in a different way now. Yeah, um, that affected a lot of folks. And, and, and me personally, I think I mentioned my, my uh, daughter had a child on January 29th before the virus started. And my, and my wife had to go out and babysit because she had no options for, for, yeah. for him. And so there was, a, there was it, a lot of people were impacted by it and it's, are still being impacted by it, quite honestly. Uh, totally. Know, they, that they've had to take themselves out of the workforce. But uh but you know we're we're getting on the other side, and we are. Uh, I think we can look back on it and really be appreciative of not only how people responded, but uh, and some of the stories that I tell you were extreme examples of a small percentage of people acting badly. But uh, right. it, we did get through it, and and you know we're still in it. By the way, uh, twenty five, pretty remarkable. Twelve hundred employees, company wide. 25 infections, confirmed infections. Wow. Employees, which I consider to be really an exceptional job. 
just yesterday we had another. So, I mean, we're not, we're not done yet. You know, we got to get through the other side of this. We have to prepare for the, when the pendulum swings back because our business did go up, our costs went up, but the pendulum is going to swing back and, and we're going to have to navigate all that. And, and supply situations are still tenuous at times. So there, there's, there's a lot still to do, but there's always a lot. That's, that's nature. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, 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 I want to ask, I, I, you know, cause I think there's a way in which the, the pandemic and the last, let's say two decades of changes the world was already going through kind of have, have, have intersected. And you talked about Online delivery, like so now you have grocery grocery delivery um, or or pick up online ordering. So mm-hmm. it, yeah. both. So yeah. you know that is to me. I, I guess I want to say it's fascinating because you are talking about essentially being a technology company, and and that's really really interesting to me. Um, one of the things that I like, one of my beliefs about the world is that today, essentially every company is a technology company. That's very true. And so I'm curious, I'm curious if you can talk about that, you know, not just from the context of now you, now people can do online ordering, but the way your supply chain or the way the food supply chain has changed over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. I mean, I suspect we're much more just in time now than we used to be. And I'm just, I'm curious about all this stuff. So I wonder, I I, I wonder if you could kind of navigate us through some of some of that well it's it's hard to believe that a mature business like the grocery business could be called a technology business but uh, but you're right i think that you know uh, we've talked before about staying relevant uh and if you're not embracing technology you're probably not staying relevant and you know many many examples of that uh, especially in the retail sector when you think about the impact amazon has had and, and other things um yeah, and, and so we're a small company, six stores, and we can't afford to be on the bleeding edge of technology, but we definitely could be on the leading edge and adapting and, and taking on stuff that we could take on. Now, I will tell you that sometimes we don't move very fast, but guess what? Online ordering, we put that system up in eight weeks. Jeez. And and I will tell you that that if it wasn't for COVID, that would have taken three years. It, it just yeah. has the sense of urgency, you know, the focus, which was also one of the benefits of, of this experience we've gone through is to see what we really can do and how fast we can do it. Right. Um, but, you know, so the online ordering thing is, is big. Uh, it's still a small percentage of the business. You know, the thing about the food business that has kept it from getting big into the online world is the fact that it's a it's a very spontaneous process you you say well, what's for dinner tonight i'm gonna go to the store and get something so you don't have a lot of time to plan some people do but they don't uh a lot of perishable product and you want to pick that stuff out yourself right uh, so there, there's there's reasons that we've been slow to to get into the amazon world but it's it, the, the virus launched us into it big time and uh, and we're operating with it, but I will tell you, it's only the beginning. I mean, the, the online ordering thing is going to get more um, seamless. It's going to increase accessibility to food like it never has before. And so you're going to see this kind of growth in. in it's going to be integrated into the into the regular shopping experience. So you may still kind of brick and mortar, but you may do part of your ordering online. 
and pick up that portion and then add your perishables and off you go. Right. And we're working on this right now. And someday we'll operate restaurants with our grocery stores. And you may choose to come down to eat and place your order while you're eating. And it's mm-hmm. picked up before you leave. You know, there's just all sorts of possibilities in this online world. You know, the source of information it provides on products, tremendous. And so right. you're going to see that grow. But there's a lot going on in other aspects. The supermarket checkout, simple thing. I got to pay for my groceries. Uh, I think you're probably aware that people like Amazon have stores now that you don't even have to talk to a person. You just walk in, pick your stuff up, yep. and walk out. Uh, I've seen demonstrations of a grocery cart that you, when you put an item in the grocery cart, it scans it, it adds it to your order. You just walk up to a, a person and they check you out. They let you, you know, bag your orders and, and go uh, so that you've got that kind of technology going on. And, and I, you're going to see more and more of that. And it's a big deal. Checkout normally costs us around 2% of sales to, to check people out. You know, if you can cut that cost down dramatically, and people want it. By the way, that's an interesting thing. You know, these self-checks that we implemented, we, we did not want to do it to cut labor. We, we wanted to do it to provide an additional option to customers. And the, the minute we fired that stuff up without reducing staffing in the front end, 20% of the people started using it. So mm-hmm. it, it just, so it, you know, people, there are people that you know, really want that technology. And so you'll see that there's a lot going on in the, connecting with customer world, not only social media, but websites, and, and in, in our case, creating inspiration around food, because that's one of our go-to-market strategies is to inspire you to eat great food and through recipes and, and information. And so having those, those loyalty apps where people can have source, have access to that information far upstream from the actual shopping experience, so that we call upstream marketing, really important. It's going to be an important part of our future. And we're working on that really hard right now. A lot on the logistics side, you know, computer generated orders, you know, grocery stores have a lot of stuff, you know, 80,000 SKUs. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, to keeping ordering all that stuff, keeping track of it. Well, we've got a lot of benefit from computers assisting us in doing that. And so you're going to see a lot more. So you're right. We are a, tech, a technology business, even though we're a mature old grocery company, uh, we have to be. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I guess kind of paired with my thesis that, that most companies are technology companies is this kind of thesis that, that is the cultural through line that we've been talking about, which is that in a simple, a quote unquote simple business, it's a lot easier to, to do well with a top-down model with a, you know, leadership makes the decision. I mean, the, the kind of Amy, uh, do you know Amy Edmondson, her, her work? She's the psychological safety, the researcher who, who kind of coined the research around psychological safety, which is people's comfort in speaking up, um, people's mm-hmm. comfort in sharing. I have not, have not uh, heard of her, but I, yeah, it's, it's sounds like very interesting work. She does great. She does great work, but she, it just introduced me to the phrasing of, you know, the idea that, that the kind of a lot of the traditional view of management or leadership is that, you know, they have a little tiny Henry Ford on their, on their shoulder and the kind mm-hmm. of, you know, the job of, I mean, it's the opposite of the Toyota production systems, the opposite of, of Kaizen. It's like the job of leadership is to come up with the answer and tell people to do it. 
which you get compliance. Um, but to run a technology business, to run a, you need to get the kind of signals of what's working and what's not from, you know, folks who are closest to the problems as we've been talking about. And yeah. so, so it just strikes me that, that, you know, all of the kind of, gosh, saying investment sounds like such a transactional word and I, and I don't mean that, but the embodiment of this participatory culture that you as a, as a business, as a family owned business have had for, you know, the last 60 plus years, like that is part of what is going to help you stay relevant and help you innovate. And, and again, those ideas aren't going to come from, you know, the small senior leadership team, they're going to come from, from the stores. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we're a shining example of that, uh, but there's more than one way to do it too, Chris. I mean, you, you know, that I, I, I mean, there's some very, very good top-down companies. Yeah. I um, think about true innovation. I, I you know, I, I'm sure you've read the Steve Jobs uh, book, uh, his biography and or autobiography, whatever it was. But uh, I, I was, I marvel at him because, you know, he was so insightful. And ideas that he brought weren't just bubbling up from the folks on the front line. I mean, they, they, he brought in amazing ideas that created whole new industries and segments. And, and so, so there's, there's, I think it, there's a lot of ways for things to happen. Uh, somebody's got to carry the torch. Somebody has to have the, the passion uh, and the vision. And, and I, I think that's important. Of course, the more you share that passion with others and they get purpose, meaning and purpose behind it, I think you can create amazing results, but more than one way to do it. For sure, and I, yeah, I, it's. Um, I like yeah, our, I like I, our way, buddy. I I really appreciate that pushback, and and I think it's really um it's really well placed, and and there's an element of it where, yeah, that's that's a and Apple is of course a really interesting example. You're right, and I don't disagree with you that you 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 ideally want both things, right? You want mm -hmm. somebody who, as you said, kind of really owns the vision and is open to flex about how, like how exactly this, this happens. Yeah. I, I there, there's uh, it, it's really a combination. And I think there are good examples out there, both if you put it into two categories, one of the things that I like to say about our company is it's an enduring company. And depending on what, you know, is the state of your industry, we're a mature industry. So for us to continue to endure is, is, is a big deal. And it takes a certain amount of focus and energy. And I, I like to, I oversimplify it, but there's three things from my viewpoint. Uh, you take care of your employees. Uh, you, you take care of your customers, which is the staying relevant, bringing innovation and other things to them, but take good care of them. And you take care of your business model. I use the term business model. Is, is your business profitable? And you can't do one without the other. So, so I like to look at those three things. And I bring that up from time to time in our conversations with folks, because sometimes people are questioning this or that. And, and I remind them that it takes those three things to continue to be. And, and um, at least that's my, my viewpoint. You know, a less mature business where it's very entrepreneurial, there's, there's a lot of innovation going on, whatever it may be. 
But you usually find other intentions around that business too. Like I'm going to create this thing and sell it. Right. I tell you, that's the last thing on the minds of our families. Okay. So are you, are you, are you creating something to get rid of it? Are you creating something to to endure? And and so I, there's so much that uh, affects how you, how you run a business, I think, and depending on where you are situational for sure. Yeah. Well, Bill, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate, yeah, your willingness to share and 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 reflect and and engage with me. I I, I want to thank you. So thank well, you. thank thank you, Chris. I was quite honored actually to be invited. So thank you for that, and appreciate the opportunity to share. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, absolutely. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad we could. I'm glad we could do this. Um, I'm doing a little experiment, and I wonder okay. if you're if you're willing to to play. This is actually a suggestion from my eight year old. Um, oh, so good. yeah. So here here I'll lay it out for you, and and um, his, his the idea that emerged in a conversation that he and I were having is, what if each guest at the end of the discussion was able to ask a question to the next guest on the podcast? And so I'll tell you a little bit about who the next guest is, okay. and you can decide if you if you are if you have a question um, for him. His name is Jason Barnwell, and he is a software engineer and an attorney. So he was an undergrad with software engineering. He's an attorney. He's at Microsoft, and he is in their corporate external legal affairs group. So they're they're kind of you know uh, mm, they're 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 big legal group. Which, because it's Microsoft, their legal group has, you know, hundreds, spends hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on inside, you know, their their work. And what we're going to be talking about is how you create a culture of innovation kind of inside a larger organization. Mm. So I'm curious if you if you have anything you you would be keen to yeah, to hear us cover or or to ask him. Culture of innovation. Well, first off, I'd be really interested in how he views culture. What is culture? Uh huh. You know, this idea of doing it within a bigger organization. You know, I used a term some time ago called pockets of excellence. You know, when I worked at a bigger company, Associated Grocers, uh, I focused on my area of responsibility in creating a pocket of excellence in that that. environment and and so but really you need to understand what is that and i'd be really interested in his perspective on what is what is culture and well and for that matter what is innovation too i'd be (laughs) yeah you know that's a pretty pretty broad topic and he he works for an amazing company it's and for him to get clarity around um how he contributes and what his passion is. Um, you know, those would be things I'd be quite, quite interested in. I had a, a brother-in-law that worked for Microsoft and he's long retired now, but, but he, he said it, it was really quite challenging in a company that big to feel like you were contributing, feel like you were making a difference. Uh, and, and to the point that that, I think that frustrated him ultimately. But um, so I, I'd be, I'd be fascinated. I will definitely listen to that, that podcast when it comes out. Well, and I appreciate your, I appreciate your willingness to. And credit your eight-year-old. That's a very insightful uh, question. That, that Isn't he, it? Is it he or she? It's a he. Yeah, it's a he. Yep. That's pretty insightful. 
So that's awesome. Well, I wish you well with that, Chris. I enjoy your podcasts, by the way, and I've listened to a number of them, and you 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 find good guests. I hope I live up to that. I you know I was thinking, what are they interested in the grocery for? Well, and and I I think hopefully you know why because it's I think regardless of what the business is, we're all trying to do our best in the way that we can. And yeah. I mean, you've just, yeah. you've articulated some really beautiful things about, I mean, I think in particular how you see your role as really taking care of these people that, that work for you. And I think that mm-hmm. that is, um, yeah, that's, that's very deep and very insightful and very human. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, I'm being funny. I think, you know, I'm critiquing myself, but, uh, but I appreciate your work. Because your, you know, your mantra about staying curious is powerful, and because mm. there is so much, I don't care what the business is or, or what the topic right. is, there, there is so much, and this world would be a better place if people were more curious, for sure. So I wish you well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening and be well until our next breakdown.